welcome to Relay Chain, a podcast produced by Parity Technologies, where we discuss all things substrates, polka dots, and Web3. Today we have Gavin Wood for the first episode of the Relay Chain. He's the co-founder of Ethereum and the co-founder of Parity and founder of Polkadot. Uh, welcome. Thanks. Uh, so I want to start with the early Web3 philosophy. And uh, I read this prior to Ethereum where you were working on music and legal software. But uh, in a 2014 podcast, you said that Ethereum would just be a weekend project um, or over Christmas break, um, but you also had some blog posts that were outlining Web3, like from low-level messaging to front-end stuff. So how much had you thought about this? Was the Web3 vision something that came really quick or was it uh, early, long time in the making? Um, it was a while, I guess, before. I, I think it was, I first sort of rediscovered Bitcoin in like 2013. And it wasn't long after sort of understanding a bit better how it worked that I uh, sort of came to the conclusion that for it to survive, it was going to need to decentralize not just the uh, basic currency itself, but also things like the exchanges. So the infrastructure that was at the time, you know, entirely centralized. And um, I sort of came up initially, I guess it was like May, June time, 2013, with a sort of design about how that could how it would work, a sort of decentralized message passing with order matching system. It didn't really go anywhere. It was just sort of a thought experiment, which is just, just to sort of imagine how um, a decentralized application like exchange, an exchange application might work. But fast forward to like March, April, 2014, and it became clear that like Ethereum is going to suffer from a similar sort of problem in that, you know, you can decentralize the very core of the protocol you want, but if you don't have decentralized infrastructure surrounding it, then it's not going to um, it's not going to fulfill the the sort of overarching purpose, and uh, Twitter, uh, I guess, like Whisper as the communications sort of mechanism for that Web three platform that I sort of envisioned back then was uh, pretty similar to the order distribution architecture for the sort of decentralized exchange thing that I come up with uh, a year before. The other sort of main component of, of Web3, um, sort of as I envisioned it back then, was the swarm component of this idea of um, a decentralized publication mechanism. And really that was uh, based almost entirely upon like BitTorrent plus um, Kademlia as a means of basically getting, giving a, um, once you have a hash, you'd be able to find the pre-image of that hash. Someone would be able to, someone would have it somewhere and it was really just a protocol. Um, to um, uh, to locate it and, and, and download it. The idea behind sort of Swarm Whisper obviously grew beyond these two basic origin points. Um, with Swarm eventually sort of, you know, I imagined it to be much more sort of cryptographic uh, with the idea being that no one would, by looking at your traffic, know precisely what you were trying to download. And the same with Whisper. No one would know looking at your traffic what, what it was that you were who you were communicating with and when you were communicating. And for these to um, uh, to really be delivered, I think we're going to have to start looking at more um, uh, additional technologies like mixnets and so on um, that might be able to help. Yeah, so we don't hear too much about Swarm and Whisper right now. Um, do you think the 
underlying goal stays the same? Have they been replaced by other technologies? Um, well, Swarm and Whisper were never really um, specific technologies. They were rather kind of placeholders in this platform. Web3 is sort of a, a, a meta platform. It's like a, a set of technologies which taken together can help people create decentralized applications and distribute them and, and so on. But it was never really meant to be a singular platform that moves along with particular versions. In principle, you know, Bitcoin and BitTorrent could form part of a sort of notional Web3. That's, it's not to say that, uh, that these are not components, that are sort of pieces of the puzzle. Um, it's just that as time goes on, I expect that we will get, um, the technology will develop and we'll get increasingly closer to being able to deliver this, you know, idea of a, of a decentralized application platform that's massively multi-user. Yeah. So you started out by talking about like a lot of the interactions between a technology like Bitcoin and the outside society is kind of via exchanges. How do you see this interaction growing, like from just an exchange into a business into maybe like a, a nation state or like more social governance? I guess it's kind of interesting in that I don't see these decentralized applications really being obviously more comparable to a business or a nation state or a protocol than any of the other possibilities. Like, I don't think it, it I wouldn't say like Bitcoin is more a nation state than a protocol, but I wouldn't even really say it's more of a protocol than a nation state. I wouldn't say either the bit it's it's any more of either of those two um, than a business. It's it's none of the three, and it's all of the three. It's kind of um it's it's a new kind of type of thing that we don't really have a word for. Well, I mean, we've got some terms like DAO and DAC and all the rest of it, but we don't really have a full understanding of what it is because we don't we haven't really seen it sort of fulfill its um, its potential quite yet. Uh, but in general, it's definitely going to have components of all of these three things. And so is any kind of decentralized application um, that's massively multi-user. So basically, everything that we can imagine being on Web3 will fulfill some of, of the characteristics that these three things have. But I don't really see them as being closer to one or uh, one or more of the uh, against the others. I mean, you know, obviously, some things, uh, you know, particular use cases will lend themselves more to replace, for example, a business than they will to replace a nation state. But if we're talking sort of general about the technology, then no, I think it's it's really a new thing and it's um, it's kind of different to all three. Yeah, I didn't mean so much a, a comparison to like where it falls in line, but like what are the tools to integrate it with these other constructs that we already have in the real world? And maybe like a better way of framing it is just say like, you've written that like Web3 technologies give you some verifiable guarantees, like that the person who sent you the message is the message. Um, I guess from a ground up approach, like what are these guarantees? And then like, how come these small set of guarantees can actually provide the foundation for something much larger? And why are like these the sets that are the most important? Uh, well, that's three questions. I'll try my best to do the first one. Um, so the guarantees are pretty I mean, you know, you've got the document probably there. You can probably uh, spell it out better than I can. But um, the guarantees are really about the sorts of things that we take um, for granted. We kind of, um, they're, they're kind of implicit expectations that users typically have, that we as people typically have when we interact with, um, you know, these massively multi-user systems, basically websites, you know, web applications. 
but they often go unfulfilled. And the reason they often go unfulfilled is because, um, you know, these, the systems by which we are interacting are kind of just little more than facades to companies or people uh, that we don't really kind of have a, a de- we don't, we would like to think that we trust them. And it may well be that we do trust them, but we don't have any real reason to trust them. Uh, now, you know, national laws and international law, as far as it goes, do try to help create some sort of trust. But in reality, the rationale for that doesn't really, there's nothing there, it doesn't really exist. The only reason that we trust that, you know, Facebook isn't going to lose our data from another security fault is because, well, they haven't maybe lost our data so far, although of course they have, so we don't really trust them anymore. But we tend to give people, you know, we tend to give these things the benefit of the doubt, and that's unfortunate because a lot of the time they really don't deserve it. And there is nothing more than this kind of blind benefit of the doubt level trust that uh, that they have going for them. There's, the technology does almost nothing to protect our interests. And so really what Web3 is, it's, it's saying, right, well, the technology, let's, let's actually build this from the ground up so that our interests are fundamentally protected. We get given these guarantees just by virtue of using um, certain pieces of technology. So yeah, knowing that you are, um, that who you're communicating with um, is in the open, we should assume that. We should assume that anybody who has access to an internet connection can know who that we are talking to unless we take action against it. And if we take action against it, then we should have the guarantee that they will not know who they are talking to with some substantial degree of certainty. Similarly to what we're saying, it should be possible to know that if we're talking to our friend over the internet, then random eavesdroppers are unable to uh, determine what it is that we are saying to our friend because we expect these kinds of one-to-one conversations. Um, and it may just be talking, it may be sending pictures, it may be doing video, whatever. Uh, we expect it to have some degree of privacy, like probably quite a, a high degree of privacy at times. Well, those expectations should be met in guarantees from the technology, not from companies like Facebook or like Google that want to tell us, oh, yes, don't worry, we've got your interests covered. We'll take all the, all the precautions and make sure that it's not hacked by, um, you know, by various nefarious actors. No, it should be protected by the technology itself. And as such, it should be open and transparent and auditable so that we don't have to trust any individual actor, be it a technology provider or a company or a government, that our interests are being looked after. Rather, we can trust people that we already know and understand and are comfortable with to actually go ahead and audit them. We can place in the hands of impartial actors or people that we already have come to rely on to make sure that they um, they also believe that this technology is correct. So to take a very simple example, it, it may be that my mother doesn't understand that this technology can protect her interests particularly well, but she can ask me and I have a much higher degree of understanding. And yet she also trusts me because, you know, I tend to tell her the, the truth about things. Um, now that's not the case if, if the technology is closed and opaque behind um, a, a company's um, profit wall. In that case, all we can do is trust the company. And similarly, you know, in certain instances, it's difficult to trust governments and there are various sort of criminal actors uh, and elements online that make it very difficult to trust anyone that you would generally sort of um, meet cold call style online. Yeah, so certainly like the outcome sounds great, but, you know, a lot of people who have power, whether it's states or corporations, are not going to see that gracefully. And so like we've already seen like a lot of banks and or Facebook Kind of adopting these watered down blockchains like which aspects of the system do you view as being like 
critical um, that you can't really make any kind of compromise on in order to get these systems in place? Well, the vision is is the vision, and I, I wouldn't really, I would set that as as the desired uh, end goal. Although, you know, these things generally uh, have, like, in reality, there is a, a sort of degree of compromise that is simply because you know these sorts of ideals and principles are rarely actually pragmatic and practical. But nonetheless, um, it's something that I think we should all have in mind as being the you know the ideal end goal. Of all of this, and I think seeing how the world's sort of realigning itself in the last twenty years, I think we can. Um, I'm not. I'm not particularly um, worried that the world will not will eventually um, sort of realign and uh, accept this kind of trust-free technology over time. And yeah, sure enough, the large actors in the world at the moment, the establishment that sort of get by because we trust them or because we cannot help but trust them, we cannot help but use them, regardless of whether we trust them or not. In fact. These guys are not super happy about the idea of being sort of disintermediated and, and eventually having their relevance reduced substantially because actually we don't need these big behemoths to tell us who and who we can't communicate with, what what, what we can and cannot say, and et cetera. Um, rather, we, um, we will have technology that allows us to be sure that our personal interests are being looked after. So I, I don't, I, I'm not like particularly bothered about working out how much of this technology banks can use in order to increase their profit margins. I actually don't think it matters. I think what matters is ensuring that the technology is developed and delivered in order to make the current requirement to trust these kinds of actors, the banks and the insurance corporations and the governments and the Googles and the Facebooks, to make the requirement to trust them unneeded. So in order to make it pragmatic for people to adopt this technology. Um, there has to be a more user-friendly experience. And I see one of the hurdles in the user experience of blockchain or crypto technology right now is that you have a lot of responsibility. Like you have to keep your private key safe. And do you see that Web2 as an inherent advantage in UX? Or do you think, like, how do you see UX evolving and what are the big hurdles to developing a better experience? Um, it's early days. What we're looking at is something that, you know, if we we're software people would say is pre-alpha. This is um, little more than a tech preview. So yeah, um, at the moment, it's like, oh, you have to keep track of your key and you have to, you know, do all sorts of things. You're exposed to language like signatures and transactions. Yeah, it's, 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 it's not user-friendly. It's not usable, accessible. Um, but that's because, you know, we're still very much in the early stages of being developed. We're like the internet in 92 or whatever. It's, it's you know, this stuff isn't designed to be used by um, normal people for normal things. It's important to build the fundamentals before you start uh, relying upon them for, you know, important stuff. But nonetheless, you can start to see um, some initial sprouts flowering of usability and accessibility, even in sort of Web3 terms. And over time, um, we'll transition more, you know, from traditional centralized models to, to sort of new um, decentralized models. And over time, as they become more popular, they'll become more accessible and usable and people will develop an, in, an increasing amount of effort to uh, uh, ensuring that, for example, you don't 
if you lose your secret key in one place, there will be simple and effective means of regaining um, access to your various things. And there are ways and means of doing it. It's not that the ideas don't exist. It's simply that the solutions haven't been developed, they haven't been engineered, they haven't been tested, they haven't been rolled out, delivered, and, and, and adopted. But over time, that will happen. Yeah, I agree with you. We're at like 92 phase in the internet in this. Um, but you don't see anything that's like inherent in the Web3 backend that prevents you from having like a good experience or a comparable experience on the front end or possibly even better. Um, I would expect it to be even better. Um, of course, there are certain types of things inevitably that will be favored, that will favor either a more centralized or a more decentralized um, um, architecture. But I think in general, it will be at worst, no different. And at best, um, an awful lot better than what we have at the moment. Yeah, I want to transition a little bit towards governance. Um, you and a few other people have talked about the internet as kind of like a new jurisdiction. How does this mesh with like the geographic concept of legality um, and like what gets preserved and replaced? Um, so legality is a, uh, a concept largely deriving from like the idea of nation states uh, and sovereignty. So a nation state is sovereign and has sovereign laws and that it can um, enforce and punish according, you know, as it, as it, as it feels best. Um, and in some very digital sense, blockchain is similarly sovereign. It has a bunch of laws or rules that it can enforce and punish as it sees fit. So we have two different kind of sovereignties here. I mean, they're both very much all about, you know, enforcing rules, but the notion of the digital world being and the sort of well-connected, fully globalized, completely integrated digital world being enforced with national level, which is a purely sort of geographical boundary, national level rules doesn't make any sense. And we're already seeing how little sense it makes by the fact that, you know, we have VPN providers that trivially allow you to, uh, if you don't like um, the you know this particular website knowing that you're from the UK, then fire up a VPN and they'll instead know that you're from Latvia. Um, suddenly, national barriers don't mean anything on the internet. You go to China and they mean a little bit. It's a bit more of a pain to run a VPN in China, but it's still possible. You arrive at the airport, you can fire up your phone, fire up a decent enough VPN, and sure enough, the Great Firewall of China is not so great. Um, I don't see that changing. If anything, I see it sort of continuing in the same vein. I don't think that national barriers are going to become um, a huge problem. Now, there's a small ch chance that, you know, the UN or something forms some like internet standardization firewall thing that means that no matter where in the world that you go, um, you still won't be able to sort of, I don't know, access certain things or whatever, use the internet in a certain way. I think the chances of that are very, very limited, very small, uh, primarily because um, it's technologically very difficult. Even in China, it's still possible, even without VPN, to sort of um, find your way through, you know, sort of ports and I don't know, the dark web or whatever outside of the um, material that maybe China would prefer you look at. So I think, I, I don't, I think technologically it's not possible. I think also, um, in just simply uh, by the fact that national governments tend to be in. Uh, one level or another of competition uh, means that they will find it uh, almost impossible to uh, agree on any kind of global firewall. And as such, I think that we will end up with a world where 
the internet is its own jurisdiction or rather set of jurisdictions and blockchains will be um, become like sort of their own sovereign nations within this world i guess what implications does that have like if you're if you're involved in the governance of a blockchain but you live in a particular country how do these things collide or hopefully not collide um an interesting uh, question we don't really know because um you know blockchain governance is so uh, so novel uh, there isn't really much uh, to go off at this point um if you are physically located in a country then whatever it is that you do um they will consider their um, their business if they know for a fact that, you know subject to their own sort of laws if they if they can demonstrate in you know some sort of court of law that um you know you are behind such and such an internet um, identity then yes they may well um, hold you to account for whatever it is that you do as part of governance and depending on that particular country's you know freedom of speech and and whatever um uh, rights uh, that they uh, they sort of give you um, it may be an issue that you uh, are taking part in in governance, but I'd say that's a fairly big if, um, and I'd say it largely um, it's more for maybe actors that have you know very critical roles in governance, but for sort of decentralized governance where we have you know a multitude of much smaller actors um, and we see the emergent effect of them coming together, um, I. I find it hard to imagine any particular nation state going after um, these uh, relatively small fish. I see it, in fact, as kind of similar to the, let's say, the governance of Bitcoin. Yeah, where well, not that there really is any governance, but if we if we want to get like kind of relatively low level governance, then we can imagine it's sort of Bitcoin nodes and miners and transactors signaling their intents. And is there ever a, a sort of a nation state that has said, right, you're running a Bitcoin node or you're mining, therefore you're contributing to the sort of DAO that is Bitcoin and uh, and therefore, uh, you know, you are helping run this sort of alternative currency, which maybe the country has decided is wrong or is, is illegal, you know, is uh, breaking some sort of money transmission laws. No, we don't sort of see that. It's it's assumed that if enough people are sort of doing it, then it's basically going to be fine and the government will just have to get on and do something else. Yeah, so when it comes to governance on chain, a lot of protocols in integrate some form of coin voting. Uh, Polkadot introduced a council, you know, kind of centered around minority rights, and that's like you know the fact that money controls modern democracy, notwithstanding. Like one of the goals of liberal democracy is protecting minority rights. Um, can you expand on the difference between you know coin holder voting as a narrow topic and on chain governance as a bigger picture? Um, sure. So coin holder voting is basically this idea that if a decision needs to be made within some system that has coins, then each of the owners or controllers of those coins will will have some uh, voice in this decision. And the voice, the amount of voice that they have will be generally proportional to the amount of coins that they have. So one coin equals sort of one vote, so to speak. And normally there's a you know majority carries um, assumption. There may be, there may be some um, additional quorum uh, requirements as well, but um, it's a very simple mechanism. Now, on-chain governance in general is forget that particular mechanism, and it's the idea that um, on some you know consensus blockchain, usually there is a decision to be made, and 
on-chain governance, in my mind at least, also implies that when the decision is made, it's, it's enacted, right? It's, it's enforced. But regardless of that, we assume that there's some decision to be made and there is some mechanism on the chain that, that the chain itself enforces, some process that the chain itself enforces, um, which determines what the outcome of that decision should be, what, what, that, you know, what should be decided. Now, how it determines it, we leave undefined, right? That's the magic of on-chain governance. Different chains may have different types of governance. Some chains may do this stupid sort of coin voting thing. Fine, whatever. It's pretty dumb, but you know, it's the first thing. So whatever, you know, you got to start somewhere. Um, but other chains, you know, we would hope, like Polkadot, introduce other more sophisticated, more nuanced mechanisms. And eventually I'd hope that the on-chain governance sort of uh, proceeds and we end up with some kind of working futarchy kind of model where the mass, the crowd as a whole, feeds in information um, under sort of some set of economic interests that mean that the chain will ultimately be able to make whatever the correct decision is based upon some, you know, fundamental assumptions. So, you know, whereas Polkadot's yeah, is certainly not at the futaki level, we do, you know, there is some sophistication behind it. We do introduce concepts like um, lock voting, which means that, you know, as um, as coin, it's not a simple coin holder vote, rather there's some degree of conviction if you are uh, happy to lock yourself into the system and the potential uh, ramifications of your decisions for longer than it means that your opinion counts more. And it's not to say that this is, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think that this is certainly the be all and end all, but I, I think it is an important um, step towards this ultimate desire that blockchains should be able to govern themselves, so to speak. And I don't mean that again, blockchain sort of the computer rules, but rather um, it shouldn't be the case that individuals rule as is the case, you know, in, in sort of traditional governments where you, 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 know, you elect a president or a prime minister and you have a cabinet and, and they basically make decisions over certain things. It's people who make decisions, uh, but rather that a blockchain makes the decisions based upon combining all sorts of, you know, inputs and factors. And some of those will be the opinions of coin holders, and, but there may be others as well, in such a way that no single actor or no small set of actors can influence the vote in some um, uh, nefarious way. But also the ability to change the factors and inputs and rules by which it updates itself. Um, sure, that will be one of the decisions that it might need to make. So when it comes to like the idea of a council, what's what is really like the social contract of the council with the stakeholders, and who are the stakeholders? Um, so the council's uh, a fairly simple abstraction. It's based upon the uh, parliament in the UK. It's a set of elected representatives. In this case, you know, I chose to use uh, an approval voting system um, that's rotating, which means there isn't a single election event. Rather, there's a, there's a, a number of them, and it, over time, the members sort of rotate out, so they they they, they get refreshed, but in a sort of round robin files uh, fashion, so that none of them, uh, not all of them, have to sort of go out at the same time as is the case in the U.S. and the U.K. systems. Uh, once they're in place then they're free to kind of as a as a whole form much of the legislative uh, timetable for the governance system there can still be public votes but they happen sort of 
in an interspersed fashion, interspersed with the, count, the votes that the council puts forward. And the council can, if they are unanimous, can sort of bias the public, uh, bias the count to a degree that means the public have to, uh, or the, the coin holders, or the rather not just the coin holders, but the lock voting coin holders, um, have to uh, vote against it, you know, with some substantial quorum before it would be um, rejected. So basically, the council, if they act as a whole, as a unanimous body, get the benefit of the doubt that they, whatever it is that they're tabling, is in the interests of the um, of the blockchain. But it cannot be emphasised more that the ultimate source of authority for making these decisions rests with the the coin holders. So it still means that if 50% of the coin holders with full conviction believe that, you know, the decision shouldn't happen, then they will always be able to ensure that that decision doesn't happen. They are the ultimate authority. The council are merely sort of uh, caretakers that um, have the benefit of the default, but little, little else. So this idea that like over 51% can just, you know, fork the network and take it where they want, um, like, who are the stakeholders and are they all part of the network? And so, like, a parallel I'm kind of thinking of is that, like, with the recent Boeing 737 MAX crashes, like, the people who are in the airplane presumably are not part of the design process of the airplane. They have no say in this. And so, with the internet affecting so many people in the world, how do you go about uh, looking after the rights of people um, and are at least being mindful of the people who may not have a direct stake in the system but are affected by it in some way? Uh, if you want to uh, have a voice, then you need to get some stake. I, I absolutely refute the view that blockchains are some sort of public service that every person on the planet has some right or some say in uh, the decisions that should be made within the blockchain. Absolutely not, no. The blockchain is an economic vehicle. If you don't want to take part in the economic vehicle, you are free to. You are free to not take any stake in it, and you are free to ignore it. But... Ultimately, the economic vehicle owes you nothing. So this is essentially a, a voluntary democracy. It's not a democracy at all, nor should it be. Um, democracy is all about one head, one vote. Democracy is about all of the people uh, um, within the nation having a say. Well, I'm happy for the idea of all of the people within that, that hold stake in the system having a say. Sure, weighted by the stake that they hold, but I'm... Everyone who is not holding stake, um, they don't get to have a say. But holding stake is voluntary, so you get to choose if you want. If you think you're affected by the system, then you can buy into it and have a voice. Uh, so I'm affected by the U.S. I don't have a voice in their elections, but that doesn't stop the U.S. from being democratic. Fair enough. Um, whether that's right or wrong is kind of besides the point, I guess. Yeah. Um, when it comes to interfacing with the outside world, one of the goals of Ethereum smart contracts was to take you know, ambiguous outside world data and be able to make a very clear decision on this. Like, what's the best way to define a program, like how it should behave, and then what to do when it doesn't behave as it is intended? Besides, like the code is law approach, which doesn't really work because you know, as a reference implementation in code, it doesn't always behave how you think it was going to. Uh, sorry, could you rephrase the question? <laughs> yeah. So when a not just an Ethereum smart contract, but any kind of deterministic system that's difficult to mutate, you could say. If it doesn't behave the way you intend it to, um, what's the best way to handle the fallout when it doesn't behave that way? 
I think um, principles are important. And the principle of the matter is that when you sign up to a system, you sign up to its rules. Even if they're based upon a misunderstanding of the rules you signed up to. The misunderstanding is sort of, in principle, is you as the user's fault, not the system's fault, not the other users of the system's fault. I think principles are important in providing a guiding, um, a guiding light, you know, of the rough direction to go in, where we should be headed. And I think as a principle, um, particularly for low-level systems, immutability is perfectly reasonable. That is not to say that there are instances where principles need to be set aside in the interests of self-interest and pragmatism. And when I say self-interest, I mean um, the interest of the system as a whole, not the interest of any particular individual actors. Governance is there as a means to determine and codify formally when pragmatism and the interests of the wider interests of the system outweigh the principle of immutability, outweigh the principle of expectation. In general, the systems exist to uphold user expectations. If the governance mechanism should decide whether expectations are better upheld if the system is uh, remains immutable against maybe some unexpected state transition because it you know, some bug in a contract, for example, or whether they are best upheld, whether the expectations were such that a sufficiently large number of people in the system believed that the system would act in, in some way that wasn't actually the way that the code says it should act. That's the point of governance. It's basically to work out this really soft notion of how many people expected it to do X versus how many people expected it to do Y and the strength of those expectations. And to to balance it against the benefit of immutability, but then the costs of immutability too. That's not something that a protocol can sort of objectively build in. We just don't know how to you know, quantify human expectation. And that's why we have to sort of fall back on humans and their governance mechanisms. But overall, it's really one against uh, principle versus pragmatism. And you need something like governance to work out where the balance lies. So going to like a more technical level, um, we talk a lot about supply chains and sensors, oracles. So if you have like sensors or actuators that are interacting with the system, um, a lot of these systems uh, have floating point numbers, for example, um, that you are outspoken against or calibration errors or drift. It's pretty easy to, to tell when like if a sensor just fell off, but there are other errors that are kind of fuzzier. So how can you take like these trustless, deterministic systems and interface them with the real world so that they're not just self-contained? Um, well, interfacing with the real world is like input and output. So the output is relatively easy. You just say the blockchain wants this to happen. I will pay someone if they make it happen. Input's the harder thing, sure. So you have some phenomena in the real world that you want to um, record on chain. Now, your chain doesn't want to trust any particular um, oracles or any particular measuring device or measuring actor. And so um, we end up with something of a problem. We want to sort of measure something or we want to get a measurement of something, but we, the blockchain itself doesn't have any power to measure it itself and it can't trust anyone to do it, any one actor to do it for. 
So what do you do? Well, you know, you have to sort of spread it out and say, right, well, um, we're going to use some uh, cryptographic uh, mechanisms to sort of select perhaps at random a bunch of bonded measuring people that are going to go and measure something on demand and then come back and, and tell us what it was and then be paid, presuming, you know, on the assumption that the blockchain sort of continues to believe it, it, it they give a good answer. Now, you know, you've got all sorts of um, sort of crypto economic or economic mechanisms that you, you know, that can help um, in some way, um, shelling points being a, a sort of notable one. Um, unfortunately, there are pretty much just as many arguments why these things uh, may not work when the stakes are very high. I don't really have a, a sort of, you know, I'm not going to come and, and give a, 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 an amazing answer and uh, cover a silver bullet here. No, um, I don't think it really exists. I think you just have to accept that, that there are mechanisms that exist and make sure that you have uh, the right mechanism given the right sort of level of um, potential uh, malicious actor or attack uh, within the system. Well, that's hopefully one of the benefits of increased interoperability is that you can have increased specialization in dealing with these niche cases. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, the ability to create sophisticated on-chain logic will no doubt be a uh, an important factor building the sorts of things that are robust to um, uh, to attack. I want to finish up with just for new people who would like to get into the area, what do you think are the most important skills to have and what uh, what areas are lacking in the industry that could use a lot more development? Um, Deep thought is a really important skill. I'm not sure if it's a skill or a talent, but the ability to consume and internalize a problem and understand um, understand it to the point that you can think about it outside of a, a traditional sort of trustworthy central actor with sort of um, untrustworthy secondary actors um, asking about stuff for it, to the point that you can really imagine it as many disinterested actors all trying to interact with each other, asking them uh, questions and think about the sorts of rules that you can introduce that would allow the emergent effects to become what it is that you want. That's an incredibly difficult thing to learn, but it's something that is, is very important in the world of sort of, you know, this trust-free digital crypto economic world. Um, beyond that, like understanding you know, very basic computer science things like computational complexity and storage complexity, very important. Understanding what parts of an algorithm may need to be refactored or redesigned simply because they can't be implemented on chain because they would, they would blow up the state too much or it would have potentially you know, um, an attack vector uh, in terms of economics. Um, Beyond the sort of more computational stuff, I think um, understanding better which problems are better solved in a decentralized fashion um, and which problems are perfectly fine for now in a uh, solved in a centralized fashion is is important. And for that, it's like really about understanding a little more about, you know, the uh, the underlying technology and the costs and the benefits to using things like, you know, trust-free systems like blockchains. And, um, and decentralized messaging. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's not really skills, I guess, but it's for sure any skills are useful, right? They can be, t any skills can be turned to be used um, in this ecosystem. But um, if you're looking for sort of those really important bits of 
genius or talent that really push you into the the next level, then I think that's what they would be. This is sort of like a meta complexity where you have complex systems, a lot of parts interacting with each other. And then to understand how can you have a bunch of independent uh, actors, whether they're people or computers acting within various parts or multiple parts of the system and then how that all interacts. Yeah, it's really just, um, it's almost like designing board games actually. So I did this as well before I came to work in in this this world, this ecosystem. And designing board games is all about coming up with a set of rules, which at once makes it sufficiently good of a challenge, but also that people can understand sufficiently well to be able to come up with a strategy. And that's really difficult. Being Creating rules that are accessible, that people can understand and internalize enough to like work out how to play the game. Thanks for coming on, Gav. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the first episode of the Relay Chain podcast. Our upcoming guests include Amber Balde and Patrick Nielsen from Clover, Anna Kaplan and Deirdre Connolly from the Zcash Foundation, and Jillian York from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We'd love to keep in touch. Follow us on Twitter at RelayChain or email podcast at parity.io. Our team at Parity includes some of the leading peer-to-peer networking developers, consensus algorithm inventors, blockchain innovators, and Rust developers. If you want to learn more about our work or want to work with us, visit our website at parity.io and sign up for our newsletter at parity.io newsletter. Music